Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to the 34th. And I'm looking at folks that leave right-wing extremist movements and change their lives and start working on pulling others out of right-wing extremist movements. So today we're talking with uh, Chris Buckley, who is a former white supremacist, uh, white nationalist, um, and he works for an organization called Parents for Peace. And they do interventions with those that are trying to get out of the right-wing extremist movement or with uh, sometimes contacted, I believe, by family members uh, that are concerned about others that are involved and they want to have some sort of an intervention. So this is important work. Welcome, Chris. Hey, thanks for having me, man. It's a pleasure. Uh, we, we don't just work with white supremacists, though. We work okay. with all all spectrums from Islamism, environmentalism, yeah. eco-terrorism, white supremacy. Uh, we we kind of we work the full spectrum of extremism and ideology. So. Oh, that's fascinating because you're right. Not all extremism is centered on right-wing extremism. There are many forms that that can take. Um, so right. let's talk a little bit about your background, how you came um, to this position. I believe that you were recruited into the KKK while you were in the military. In my time in the movement, I got into uh, the KKK and I became, you know, the second in charge for the entire U.S. I was oh, an Imperial Nighthawk. That's way yeah, out there. I, I, yeah, I was in a an Imperial Nighthawk, which is like second in charge to the to the Imperial Wizard oh, wow. uh, for the for the LWK and the Georgia White Knights. Um, I'm also a combat veteran and uh, a recovered drug addict. What were some of the factors that led you to become involved with the movement? Um, and then also tell us a little bit about why you left. So. Um, Early on in my childhood, I was uh, I was molested by by a close family member um, for a pretty good period of time from the age of like five till like 12 or 13 till I was old enough or outgrew his desire or whatever it was. So like I always had a deep seated hatred towards homosexuality. Okay. Um, it was kind of like a protection factor. Uh, I, I looked at every person in in that lifestyle as the person who did that to me. Um, I guess that's just the way that my, my underdeveloped brain, yeah. uh, at five to 13, that's just how my brain framed it. And perception was reality to me, uh, growing up, my, my dad was always kind of a pretty racist individual, uh, a lot of racial slurs at the house and, and negative stereotypes surrounding Latinos, uh, you know, Hispanic, the Hispanic population, immigrant population, uh, you know, he was also a pretty big alcoholic and, you know, experimented with drugs on and off. And it was always somebody else's fault that dad couldn't keep a job or dad, right. you know, had to get a new job. It was never dad's fault because he stayed out drinking all weekend and slept for two days and missed work or, you know, was unreliable or dependent or couldn't pass a drug test, you know. Right, so right. Um, like growing up and hearing those things, they were always kind of in the back of my mind. Uh, the one control factor to that was like, I had a very diverse group of friends in the, in the community that I, that I lived in. Um, I, I joined the army and, and during my time in, in combat in Afghanistan, I lost a really good friend of mine. And I remember the experience I got of Islam through that really super narrow lens, kind of, you know, allowed for the beginning of a hatred to towards Islam and Muslims in general, because there was never really any positive exposure. Uh, from the time I joined the army, I remember uh, we had just got involved. 9-11 uh, had just happened. The army was re-gearing towards its war in the Middle East. And 
the frame up was, you know, we dehumanized the, that, that group of people with our language and uh, jargon in the military and, and really referred to them in some negative stereotypes, uh, but also in our training. So like, right. you know, the only time I ever really shot at the green pop-up targets were on the qualification range. Every other bit of training that I did was the, the pictures, like the picture targets of like a, a military age man or woman with an RPG or an AK-47 pointed at you. Never really anybody saying, hey, here's a bottle of water or, you know, friendly. So, I mean, like the visual and the language conditioning that this is the enemy, this is what it looks like, this is what you're supposed to do when you see this and how you're supposed to react. Yeah. Kind of just built this this reactiveness, right? This dehumanized, reactive uh, response to you know, local nationals and Middle Easterns in general when we were over there. And then losing losing my really close friend, Daniel Wallace, kind of for the first time since I was a kid, I felt the same hatred towards Islam and Muslims that I felt towards homosexuals. Mm. Um, so fast forward, I come home. Uh, I, uh, I'm in an accident, in a, in a training accident with a Humvee. I broke my back. That was my introduction to opiate painkillers. Oh. Um, so now there's this recipe for disaster. And now because I've had such a severe injury, the military's like, we're gonna med board you and put you out. So I go the next two years actively taking painkillers and, and progressing in my addiction, but because I have a prescription, they can't really do anything on UA or urinalysis screenings. And the time comes for ETS or go through med board. And I just chose to go out on my own terms. So I chose not to reenlist. Uh, left the army with 13 years in service as a combat veteran. And then all my accountability disappeared. Mm. All my camaraderie, my friends, the the people that I was in the service with kept on moving through their career and eventually lost contact with everybody, became isolated, alone, and started to cope with the the things that I'd been through, through the, the abuse of prescription pain pills that it progressed into abuse of heroin, abuse of methamphetamines, um, and then I remember that like at the same time I come out, I was going through this whole, like, where do I stand? Like, am I for abortion or am I against abortion? Is there a gray area for abortion? Am I a Republican? Am I a Democrat? Like, how do I want to vote? Am I, you know, am I for tearing down Confederate statues? Am I for leaving them up? Am I yeah. for this? And like, Society was really going through a change at that period. And I think that we can tie it back to, to my extremism back to that period where every single time you turned around, somebody wanted to point you in a box. Yeah. And like, I never got to decide if I was pro-life or pro-choice or, you know, pro this or, or anti that. Like, I didn't get the choice. People like, you know, you're either this or you're this. And it's like, but no I'm not. Like, yeah. No, no gray area. And mm -hmm. finally... I remember I was called a white supremacist and I was like, you know what? Like, I'm so sick of being put in boxes. Um, my wife's sister had really started to experiment with some drugs and, and, you know, an alternative lifestyle and which was cool. Like I didn't care. I, I was using drugs too. And, uh, my dealer one day, he had told me that, uh, he had hooked up with this white girl and she was, you know, she'd do anything for, you know, some, some dope and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, that, you know, he wanted to tell me about it. And I didn't want to hear about it, you know, and it was really pissing me off. So 
I remember I come home that night and it was him and my sister-in-law sitting on the couch and I just lost it, man. I was like, you know what, man? Like I was in such a drug fueled, like traumatized state that I didn't really have an outlet for Cause you know, I go to the VA. I, I went to the Birmingham VA on a suicide attempt one time and was released two hours later with a, a new bag of pills. Um, so I, I started actively Googling like, you know, groups out there that were, you know, pro-nationalist, pro-white uh, preservation. And I come across some some militia groups and I started to hang out with them. But then I realized like they're really about trying to mess stuff up and, and like attack people. And so I was introduced to another guy who was uh, involved in the Klan and, you know, just actively reached out to the dude online. And, you know, he was a recruiter for the KKK and you know, it, it really, re- it wasn't like, let, let us push this ideology on you. It was really more about like, what are you pissed off about? And how can we, how can we manipulate and frame that and take advantage of that to bring you onto our cause and, you know, indoctrinate you into more on what we believe. And it didn't take long after a few barbecues and some parties and a lot of drugs. Uh, I was kind of sympathetic to the cause and I began to get involved. So that's how I got involved with the Klan. I, I, I didn't get involved in the Klan until I got out of the military. Right. Okay. So I really want to be clear about that. Uh, I did have the thoughts and the ideology prior to leaving the military, but I never acted on them until I got out. Gotcha. Um, it was like a moral taboo for me. I, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't make that, that crossover. But as soon as I was out, it was all, all bets off and, and I was involved like, up to my neck. Interesting. Um, the drug aspect is really fascinating too. Is that pretty prevalent in the movement? Um, certain certain groups. Uh, there's some some groups out there that are all about like body purity and and you know keeping the body pure and, and right. exercise and working out. Uh, but most of the time, most of the body purity groups are like in inside the prison system, like Aryan Brotherhood, yeah, uh, Aryan Nation. Yeah. Pecker Woods, those guys. Yeah. So like they're real big on like keeping yourself fit, keeping yourself worked out, none, not partaking in drug use, but it's easy for them because they're in the prison system. I mean, Chris, wildly though, Pecker Woods deal drugs. I mean, absolutely. I mean, you can like they're there for a while. Like when I first got involved in meth, I was dealing meth, but I wasn't doing meth. I see. Okay. Right. Like you never get high on your own supply type of type of thing. Um, but eventually, you know, like, I started using it and I remember the the guy that I was buying it off of was like, like he sat me down and tried to have like a dope head intervention. He was like, look, bro, if you're going to sell dope, you can't sell something you do. Like you got to sell something that you don't, that you don't mess with so that you don't get into your own supply. And that's kind of how the pecker woods work is, is, you know, like they, they, they deal drugs, but they're forbidden to use them. Okay. That makes uh, sense. And there's really strict consequences for the prison gangs. Like, a B A N Peckerwood guys like that 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 do get into their supply like there's pretty severe consequences, um, but outside of the prison system, right? Like everybody's using everything, and you're trading back and forth to get what your plug your your drug of choice is, and mm-hmm. you know, so I mean it's just it's 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 very very lucrative yeah. in in the drug market. So that makes sense. All right, so. What was the turning point then for you? You got to a certain place where you're like, you didn't want to be part of the movement anymore, or did somebody intervene? Like, how did that happen? 
there was a lot like just like there was a lot of ingredients that got me to the point of committing to the movement like you know i i always refer to it as like it's like baking cupcakes right you can have all the right ingredients but if the temperature ain't right your cupcakes don't come out uh for me the all the ingredients were there the oven was just right and you know i i i sprouted into the movement and and you know the same thing with getting out like all the ingredients all the the environment had to be just right and so i remember like there was a lot of conflict between me and my wife like she was actively pushing for me to get sober to get away from the movement she was worried about the safety of our family and oddly i used her worry about the family safety as a more prevalent reason to stay involved with the group right because it's like look we need safety we need protection and and that's what the group's for and um eventually she just got tired of it and there was you know she left she took the kids she said look you're either gonna you're gonna work on you you're gonna choose the clan and the drugs or you're gonna choose me and these kids and i remember that she left and i was angry about that so it kind of pushed me further towards the movement but i was already at the point of wanting to get sober because i was miserable yeah. I just didn't know how I was too far involved and, and I'd made a few attempts on my own and always fell back into relapse, back into the addiction. Uh, and I remember my wife, you know, I didn't find out about it until after, but she was like, you know what, if he can Google how to protect the white race and find people in the clan and militia groups and 3% groups, yeah, maybe I can per- like Google, how do I get somebody out of a hate group? And so that's what she did. And at the time, Google's algorithm was like sending her to the ADL, the Southern Poverty Law Center. But she come across a story from Arno Michaelis okay. and his story, his background of being a hammer skin in the 90s and leaving that's the movement. Yeah. And, and yeah, and like trying to figure out how to leave the movement on his own. And it's taken him like he's been doing this, this recovery work on himself for over a decade. And she was like, you know, he was the leader of a white power hate band called Centurion. And yeah. so she, she found a, a way to email him. And at the time, he was working with a group called Serve to Unite, him and uh, a, a colleague of his, Pardeep Kalika, who I work with extensively now. And the dude's like awesome. He's one of the best like practitioners and clinicians that I've ever had the pleasure of, of observing and working with, nice. especially in this field, since it almost doesn't exist. Right. Um, so... She reached out, she shot him an email and Arno shows up and he comes all the way from Milwaukee to meet wow. me. And it was, it was kind of an intense meeting because like my, my addict brain was like, how do you, you like talk about, talk to people behind my back and men at that, invite them to our home and I'm fine. And Arno just told me, he was like, dude, we got to get you sober, man. And that was the moment that I was like, okay, cool. I'm, my ideology isn't a threat. He's here to help me work on sobriety. We talked about his battle with alcoholism and uh, I really bought into it. And for the next couple of months, Arno really started working with me on my sobriety. Uh, you know, of course I kept relapsing and, and falling back and eventually I caught a drug charge. Uh, and that was okay. what was, yeah, that was what was needed because I, I asked the judge at Arno's, you know, advice, like ask for treatment. This is your first charge. The first time you've been in trouble, like that judge will help you. If you ask for help, you have to ask for it though. Yeah. So I did. I went in front of the judge and I broke down crying. I was like, I just want to be a dad and a husband again. And and I'm stuck, man. I feel like I'm trying to swim and I just I can't keep my head above water and I, I, I'm sinking and I need help. The judge was like, I, I, I feel for you. He seen that I was a veteran. He was sympathetic. And he and he told me he was going to release me on bond 
until I was able to process into the treatment center. And I was oh, like, nice. your honor, I can't, like, you can't let me leave here today. I'm going to go get hot. Ah, interesting. And the judge was like, all right, well then I remained you to custody until a treatment bed opens up. And I spent six months in jail waiting for treatment. Wow. It took six months. Um, we need more beds. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, we need a, a, a more, effective system to deal with addiction and treat it as a sickness and a uh a right. disorder rather than a crime i mean there is right. criminal aspect to it there is some criminal like responsibility to it but i think that we need to overhaul our criminal justice system like nonetheless uh, and that's a, that's a part of it but that's a whole nother conversation yeah, exactly. um yeah. but eventually i got into the treatment and i i remembered that i had one month sober and then six months over and then 90 days, uh, 120 a year. And, you know, at that point I had built a really organic relationship with Arno nice. and I really started to, to buy into our friendship and like, it was organic. It was natural. It was authentic. And, and through the modeling of his behavior and his, you know, involvement with me, I started to find a new way. And, and I started to, to contemplate, like, I need to get out of this. This is awful. And, by 2016, I had made the decision to give Arno my robe and my patches, wow. and we burnt everything in the backyard, man. And and you know that was that was the day I left. Was uh, it was the fall of 2016. That's remarkable. So it, it seems to me that it almost needs to be uh, the work needs to be done by somebody that's been in the movement because only people that have been part and parcel to that could really understand. Uh, what it's about, why you're there, how it affects your mental well-being. I mean, you almost have to live through those experiences. If I had tried to intervene, for example, like, you, why would you even listen to me? I have no idea what I'm talking about. So, Facts. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I remember when I went through treatment, we had this uh, really ignorant substance abuse counselor that had never been addicted to anything. <laughs> and we had a project that we had to, that we had to work on, like, what are our addictions? How are we addicted to it? And I remember somebody in the class was like, well, can you model what you're wanting from us? Because, you know, addicts in recovery are kind of aggressive and, and up and down on their their right. chemical imbalances. Right. And <laughs> so she was like, well, I've never been addicted to anything. So I'll use chocolate, for example. <laughs> and I remember I got so mad at that, yeah. like so angry There's at no like my core. <laughs> None. And like I remember like I actively tried to get that lady reassigned to a different type of counselor's position. Right, right. But. Like, yeah, and no, then I, yeah. Oh, sorry, my bad. I thought you. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, you almost need it with the uh, extremist stuff too, right? Only people that have yeah. been, I mean, I think it's kind of parallels that in a way. Yeah. So it's funny that you bring that up because I remember like, it was like sobriety was really hard for me. Like, I mean, like I had to go to places that like, I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy doors that I had locked off and blocked and bolted and like never wanted to open again like the molestation losing wallace yeah. losing you know the relationship with my father the, the the verbal and the physical abuse from him uh witnessing it towards my mom and you know i i just like there was a lot of trauma that i had to dig through and yeah. i started to wonder and i remember one day i asked miriam and arno and pardeep and i said look guys like i feel like i'm still addicted to the ideology like I'm addicted okay. to that. And I was like, is it possible to be as addicted to an idea as it is to being addicted to a substance? And like, nobody could really tell me yes or no. I mean, that same 
like very unrelatable substance counselor uh was available for a talk and i was like hey look can i be addicted to an ideology or a thought process the same way i'm addicted to substances and she's like no absolutely not so i remember i tried an experiment because i wasn't satisfied with that so i printed out all of the the symptoms and the red flags the warning signs of substance abuse like early and and middle ways and then i printed off the same list of my observed red flags and, and warning signs for ideology and extremism and, and radicalization. I remember I didn't label them and I just set them down in front of her. And she was like, what, what is this? And I was like, can you tell me which list is which? Yeah. He goes, they're both substance abuse lists. Like, I mean, like they're both warning signs of substance abuse. Like, what's the point? And I was like, no, one of them is what I've identified as warning signs of extremism. Yeah. And she, I remember she kind of like, she processed that. And because of that experience, I was like, I have to dig deeper and I have to do more research and I have to really follow this through now. Like I have an obligation. Um, so I formed a theory. I, I remember I talked to a guy over at Yale, a neuroscientist over at Yale, and he confirmed it. He was like, dude, the same parts of our brain that fire during addiction are our amygdala, our nucleus accumbent, our hippocampus, our prefrontal, our bilateral cortex, like all that reptilian part of our brain that Fires is fired up. on. by addiction and substances are the same part of our brains that fire and light up on triggers and, and, you know, revenge craving type of, of processes. And I was like, so if that's possible, if that's the case, that it should be possible to treat that process with like the same style that we treat like an upper or an amphetamine addiction with like this moral cognitive approach to like self-exploration, self-pro like, the self-guided and self-paced program. And that led to the the program that, that I created called the TRP program or trauma and recovery program uh, for military. And then I remember I met Sammy Wicks, who's a really cool dude. And he reached out. He was like, can we do this for law enforcement? Cause he was a cop. Yeah. And I was like, absolutely. So we created a, a law enforcement version, a first responders uh, version of trauma and recovery program and piloted at Aurora PD. And it was great. And it was really successful. So, uh, and then it led me to doing a trauma stress studies with Dr. Basil Vanderkolk uh, through Petsy and the Trauma Research Foundation that lasted like a year. Right. And uh, like the the parallels between substance abuse and ideological extremism, radicalization are processes yeah. are so parallel yeah. that like, yeah. So, I mean, like that's, that's kind of how the whole thing went down and, you know, after meeting Arno, Arno introduced me to Miriam during his his first initial contacts with me. And Miriam watched me for like two years and was like, Chris, would you like to volunteer at Parents for Peace? Like, it's a really small organization. We're working with helping people get out of hate groups. And I was like, I don't know how to do that. But like, yeah, whatever I have to do to 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 be a, a help and take back some of the negative that I've put into this world. Um yeah. And I volunteered for a few years. And then finally, like, you know, we got some funding and Miriam was like, Chris, I want to offer you a job. Like you're really gifted at this. And so, yeah, I've been with parents for peace ever since. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's, that's. So the premise here, I think is that hate, hateful ideology, extremist ideology is an addiction in the same way that, that drugs can be. And once you get sort of on that road, on that path, 
and you're constantly surrounded by people that are also addicted to the same hateful ideology, right? And you're just reinforcing and normalizing uh, these things. And I think we see that happening in social media, like Telegram chat rooms, I think is like the latest version of that, where you see, you know, the neo-Nazi chat rooms where they're all, you know, yeah. together. In that. So I think that's part and parcel. Um, so what I found really, really fascinating about uh, Parents for Peace is that they look at extremist ideology as a public health issue. And I think that's an interesting perspective, one that I have not seen before. And it does make sense um, because yeah, extreme, for sure. yeah, extremism is becoming, is increasing. It's becoming more normalized. Um, political violence is becoming more normalized. So we, for definitely sure, yeah. have an issue, we definitely have an issue we have to address. So um, talk a little bit more about why it's a public health um, crisis and why more people should be concerned about that. And um, also part of the program that you guys have set up uh, that you've helped create. Yeah, so I, I think the, the basic, easiest way to, to frame it is with a disease model, right? Uh, diseases are progressive unless arrested, they become fatal. Uh, with the prevention process, you have a prevention model, an intervention model, and a long-term care model, right? So the goal is to prevent the disease, period, which is why we do boosters, inoculation, uh, you know, the, the, the lifestyle choices to prevent those diseases. Uh, and that could be from like diabetes to cancer to, you know, just the common cold. Right. Um, because we look at extremism as a virus or a cancer on society. Uh, and then you have the intervention model. When somebody does get sick, then you have to intervene on the disease and, and get that person healthy. And then the, the last part is the long-term care and recovery model from that disease and prevention in the future. So when we frame it as a public health model and a public health approach, we frame it in that same light. Yeah. We have to have preventative processes, which my, my, my colleague and, and, you know, partners over at Serve to Unite uh, Arno, Pardeep, uh, have really done a great job at prevention of like the, the susceptibility to extremist ideologies, trauma processing, uh, integration with other people that normally you wouldn't be able to interact with as much uh, to kind of build this resiliency to the ideology of extremism. The next phase is like the phase that I'm actively involved in, which is the the intervention phase when somebody does become involved in extremism and does start to adapt an ideology and be pulled into certain groups, whether it be Al Qaeda, Antifa, white supremacy, you know, eco-terrorism, then there's a process that we use to kind of intervene, separate the person from the ideology and begin to identify, isolate, repair the traumas that led them to be susceptible to that ideology in the first place. Mm-hmm. The same way we would with substance abuse, right? We use substance abuse as now uh, a public health approach. And the strides that we've made aren't where we need to be, but we're getting there. And we're doing the same thing. We're following that same approach with, you know, mental health and, and extremism. So, yeah. and then the, the following phase is, you know, the, the long-term care. So once we get somebody out of a movement, or out of a group or an ideology, we still have that obligation to build this network of care around them through their family, their loved ones, counseling, substance abuse treatment, long-term cares with that, as well as ourselves to still maintain contact with the family, the person in, in question, and really help to keep them moving forward in a positive way so that they can 
not only reintegrate into society in a positive way, but Lord willing, actually become the agent for change in their community. Right. Such as like me, right? Like I use my process as a, a, a model for success, right? We don't want to just get somebody out of extremism. We want to send them back to be the agent to change the the counter voice of the extremist narrative to pull people and help people out of that movement before law enforcement get involved, before there's, you know, God forbid, a life lost or, or a violent action taken against a, a community. So, so that's our goal. Um, and with the TRP program that we created, TRP, it follows that recovery model of the public health crisis with substance abuse. And, you know, it's loosely based off of the ideology that we could treat substance abuse and extremism in the same way through a non-medicated, you know, approach of like cognitive reform, cognitive introspective uh, treatment towards, you know, the trauma, the underlying cause. Because in this in this country and and you know the world abroad, it's really easy to focus on the what somebody's doing. Right. They're involved in extremist ideology. They're they're acting out against this group or that group, but it's really hard for us to tap into our inner compassion and be like, why, why are they doing this? And it's really easy to be angry and to lash out at extremists. It really is. I mean, like they're the most (laughs) undesirable people to have in your community. And, and in no way am I saying that we should be empathetic towards extremists, but. Well, Um, I don't know that, in a way, I think some of the folks that I've talked to um, that used to be in extremist movements have mentioned that part of them leaving the movement sort of required that they stopped othering other people that they were parts of groups that they hated. And, Absolutely. That, and that happened through contact with these individuals and seeing that these individuals yeah. were kind to them. So perfect example is that, is that like a form of empathy i don't know but it makes I, sense. I think that what i meant by by not not like you know we we've got to like society and and in their whole like there are going to people that watch this to go oh so we have to we have to victim we have to make yeah. the, the extremism no. the victim no, the, no, no, the no, white no. supremacist yeah. has to be the victim and that's that. not yeah that's yeah not what we're doing. but i, gotcha. I think that I gotcha. yeah i think that there there's almost a prerequisite of it creates a cognitive opening when they meet the other and they meet the them and that them isn't what they said they were. So like the meeting between myself and Dr. Haval Kelly out of Atlanta um, was that cognitive opening because like he was a Muslim, he was an immigrant. He came right after nine 11 and he was everything I said that I hated in this country. And then I met him and, like we're brothers now, like we're, we're best friends. Like, you know, we're, we're the same age, you know, he came with nothing and made it to a hundred. He's a, he's a cardiologist at, at wow. uh, Northside hospital that's in Atlanta. That's, that's I come out of the military with the opportunity to have a hundred and I fell to negative a hundred. And now I'm back to like 50 and people look at me at me and they're like, you know, Hey, you know, great job on leaving the clan. And, what people don't realize is that the work that it takes to get out of these movements is so exhausting. Yeah. Like telling your story over and over again, like it just keeps this open wound constantly. And I want to advocate for the formers out there that are actively involved in telling their stories and, you know, just tell people to be gentle with these, these guys and, and girls. Like there's a, a, a really raw wound that they have to revisit every time they tell their story. And, 
you know, it, it's, it really takes a toll on them mentally and emotionally. And, and, you know, when you're dealing with people who are leaving the movement, just be gentle. That is yeah. the best weapon for hate is compassion. And I don't know that I would be here if it weren't for the compassion of people like Arno and Pardeep and Dr. Kelly and, you know, Miriam and, and the people at Parents for Peace and, and other formers. Yeah. Like, you know, Chuck Leak and, and those right. guys that uh, that had have been through this path and kind of were there to be like, hey, homie, you're going to go through some stuff and, and we want you to be prepared for it. So, like, right. it, it was it was really helpful to have the formers and the role that formers play in de-radicalization, as you guys call it, um, is invaluable. It's like the role that that recovering addicts play in recovery for substance abuse yeah, like yeah. without that group of people it would be exponentially more difficult right. to make that connection and to guide these people out of movements 100 because you would have no credibility you know i can't right. really talk what i can't talk about what it's like to be part of a neo-nazi movement because i've never been a neo-nazi right so so it's easy for me to be like yeah that's really fucked up why would you hate people for no reason but it's just not that simple it's more complex and i think it's a conversation that we need to have as a society because you know these this is a group that's been increasing um for a myriad of reasons and uh, we have to find a solution because i don't think all of these people are necessarily you know uh trash so to speak that we should just discard them or whatnot i don't think that that's helpful um, and I don't think you can necessarily ignore the public health aspect of that. So I was really, I was really thrilled when I saw that you had this uh, version of how to deal with it because it's it's probably something that's going to sound strange to a lot of folks, right? Well, like, yeah, because it's it's something that we haven't tried before, and right, right. you know, and if it works, I mean, great. I mean, yeah, and if it doesn't, we've started somewhere, right? Yeah. And like that's a promise I made to my son. I, I remember looking at him and realizing that I was allowing my children to inherit my hate and I wasn't fair to them. And I remember I made a promise to my son when he was four and I was like, look, man, I, I can't promise you that I can do anything to stop the way that, that, that extremism is progressing in this country. But for so long, for the last 250 years, we've looked away and been like, we'll let the next generation take care of that. Like that's kind of sensitive. And, and I'm not doing that. Like I refuse yeah. to put on to the next generation what I can start today and what I can really be an agent of change and at least start the blueprint, right? Like yeah. at least get the ball rolling on like, hey, this was working, this wasn't, this is what we can do to to, to activate uh, a conversation. And I think that to your point of like, yeah, it's easy for people who aren't extremists I'm going to put my quotes up there to look at extremists and say, oh, that's really fucked up. How can you hate another person for feeling some way that you don't? But I think that I would respond to those people that say, oh, yeah, it's really fucked up. Fuck those guys. They're extremists. They need to be eradicated. That they've adopted the same us versus them mentality that, that an extremist has adopted. And they've dehumanized the extremist. They've dehumanized the person who's actively suffering and going through shit that they need to they need help with. And. We've done the same thing with them that this country's done with addicts in, in, in pointing them out, making fun of them, calling them and, and trash and dehumanizing them so that it doesn't feel so bad to openly, you know, attack and, and belittle them. Uh, and, and the really hard thing to do would be to get off of that really high horse that people are on and say, how can I help these people? How can I 
become an agent for change in my community rather than just sit here and talk about how fucked up they are. What can I do? Right. Like yeah. that's the hard thing. And, and like, I don't even, I don't even try to have that conversation with people who are like, they're trash, they're scum. That's, that's my response. Well, what are you doing to help? Right. Like, and, and leave it at that because I, I really focus. Can I ask you a question about, um, is, is shaming some of these folks an effective tool though? I mean, absolutely not. Absolutely not. It just creates a further divide okay. from the community that they're attacking. So you're pushing them farther away. I mean, think about what happens to the drug addict. They're already shameful. Look, these guys who are involved in this movement are already 90% of them are already miserable. Nobody wants to be in an extremist movement, right? It's a coping tool. Interesting. And when you shame them and you, you berate them and you publicly humiliate them, it furthers the us versus them mentality. The same way it furthers the us versus them mentality for people to publicly shame and, and attack them. And they create the system of polarization. The okay. same way with the right and the left politically. Republicans are doing it to Democrats, creating this further us versus them divide. Democrats are doing it back to Republicans, furthering the us versus them yeah. divide. And it's caused a situation where families can't even have dinner at Thanksgiving or Christmas together, right? Right. Like, and this, that's there's the, definitely the a polarization happening in, in political parties, yeah. There's very yeah, little and the same thing left, happening. I guess. Um, yeah. yeah, that makes sense to me what you're saying. Uh, but of course, the other aspect of that is what do you do about the dangerous ones that are going to commit hate crimes or whatnot? How... How do you square those two things together? I mean, it's complicated. It really is. Uh, and I think that the way to go about that is to, you have to actively try to be part of the solution instead of sitting back and being the Monday morning quarterback and the criticizer about it. Uh, I, I know that just through my work at Parents for Peace, there's so many groups and, and agencies and and nonprofits that are really coming together to be part of the solution and actively work out how to identify the threat and the danger uh, and the individuals who are susceptible to commit acts of violence from the people who are not right. Yeah. Like, okay. so I mean, like you just really, I mean, my response is going to be the same all the way through, like be part of the pro be part of the solution. Don't further the problem. Right? right. And, and I know that some people mean well, but like, there's a lot that can be done no matter what your skill set is on how to prevent extremism in your community, uh, speak out against it wherever you see it. Um, actively try to change the narrative that that person has through compassion and and love and warmth and and try to to build a natural friendship with that person because that's really hard to do, right? That's it's uncomfortable. Well, I, it is uncomfortable. I mean, I think it's I think it, it's a difficult space for those that are the victims of hate crimes to like, I, I don't feel like I could comfortably ask those individuals to extend a hand uh, to like a Nazi, for example, like I just couldn't do that because obviously that would be dangerous for them. But on the flip side, I, I do see your point. Like this is what yeah. it's hard, it's hard for me to. So I'm just reminded you know of a story saying? like, but it's, it's yeah. but we have to understand where like, this is why I want to talk to folks like you, because we need to understand, yeah. we need to understand how these things work, right? How people get to these places and positions and, and whatnot and how we can, you know, turn it around. So, so, so yeah, that, I mean, that requires maybe rethinking, you know, certain things, I suppose. Yeah. We've got, look, hate and extremism is a learned behavior. And in order it's to challenge behavior, it, you have yeah. 
we we have to we have to uncheck we have to challenge the behavior and we challenge the behavior by modeling right and okay. I, I understand how hard how extremely like a person that's affected by by extremism like they have to heal um and and i'm reminded like the best example of that is you know my 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 colleague Pardeep Kalika, you know, his uh, his father was taken from him at the Sikh Temple shooting in uh, oh Oak God. Creek, Wisconsin, by Wade Michael Page. Oh. And the person that came to to help me out of my extremism and, and substance abuse was a member of the same gang and reached out to Arn or reached out to Pardeep and was like, I, I don't know what I need to do, but I want to help you heal. And that relationship is the example. It is the standard for how people who are affected by hate crimes can heal and, and move forward, but also how people who might not have committed a hate crime, but been a, a part of a group that did commit a hate crime, like they can, they can come together and they can coexist and they can heal together. Uh, that's actually one of the, the processes of, of our recovery program is to try to find somebody that you might've harmed and either directly or indirectly and wherever it might not create further harm, reach out and actively try to, to, you know, make a connection and, and help that person uh, to really progress forward. So, I mean, like it's a really in-depth and intense program. Um, it's not for, I mean, it's, it's a really down and dirty, emotional, ugly program, but so is extremism. So yeah. We have yeah. to, you know, I mean. No, you're not wrong on that. Um, you had missed, I do want to ask you this because I have a fascination with how some of these uh, groups are now coalescing together and kind of you see members that are multiple, they're affiliated with multiple extremist groups, right? Not just one. Um, yeah. I, I'm noticing that there's some crossover between militia groups, like you had mentioned the three percenters, um, Oath Keepers, whatever, uh, and, yeah. and Nazi groups now, which is kind of interesting to me because one you know the right-wing militias are generally more just anti-government uh, right they haven't really necessarily leaned into like any sort of white supremacy uh feelings before but that's starting to change what do you think is the driver of that so i i think that it's a very simple concept of the enemy of my enemy is my friend i see uh okay. white supremacist and and white nationalist are also anti-government anti-establishment uh so when you look at bodies to to you know plan for this this war this civil war that's going to come against like militia groups in the government they're like okay we can uh we can deal with the white supremacy later we'll allow them to support our cause and be yeah. a part of our movement okay. and we'll deal with them later because they're the lesser of the threat right yeah. they don't have tanks and and, and an air force it's, so it's that's wild. the kind of that's the motto and you're seeing you're seeing groups that uh, that would have never participated together before right. actively come together. Like you'll see the burning crosses and the burning swastikas at white supremacist and KKK rallies now. Yeah. Uh, and you're seeing groups come together with that motto: "The enemy of my enemy is my friend." Uh, and we're we're gonna. Does this make them more know. dangerous in your mind? I mean, I think it gives them more population. Uh, yeah. You know the the groups are dangerous to begin with, and right. and I think that the more radical the ideology becomes, the more it evolves, the more dangerous it becomes. And I mean, to take any way anything away from the threat of white supremacy and and 
nationalism in this country would be a disservice to the the work that I do. I mean, it's yeah. it's a very dangerous uh, threat Let's... to this country and. Let's talk about the dangerous aspects. I'm also curious about leaving the movement. Um, I would imagine that if you've been part of, you know, some sort of a neo-Nazi group, that leaving that group is very dangerous because they don't want the other members to KKK as well, right? So some of these folks, you know, they're not out in the public. Um, their membership isn't something that's known. So is it dangerous? Have you found in your uh, in your work that some folks are uh, threatened by the groups that they're leaving and that becomes part and parcel to the intervention? So I think that there's a two side to that. Like one, yes, absolutely. Uh, while I was involved in the movement, we had uh, a local police officer involved, uh, yeah. some school teachers, like there's, wow. and they didn't want their, their identity known. Uh, but I mean, like when you leave the group, um, you you've just gotta you've gotta face it and it's super scary it's it's uh i mean like i was i was assaulted pretty good um you know i don't i don't like to to talk about it but i mean i was i was beaten probably within an inch of my life and just left in the woods uh i was actually found i was found by a rabbit hunter a uh, guy who was running his rabbit dogs uh i was i was kind of like tied to a tree i had some broke ribs broke collarbone uh i was i had some pretty nasty cuts on my head um uh, you know, fractured my orbital size. So, I mean, like, yeah, I, I was beaten pretty severely when, when I left and it's all part of the fear tactic. Like, you know, if you leave, you're going to suffer this fate at the hands of your brothers. Uh, and it's kind of a fear tactic to keep people from leaving the movement. But on the same token, like when I left, I never stopped speaking out, ousting members of the group and doxing them to the, you know, you. To, the, to the authorities. And it's like, you know, I, there's not a man out there in this world that I'm afraid of, you know, I mean, I'm more afraid of myself and what I'm capable of than I am any man out there. Right. So, I mean, like, and I had to lead by example. I had to, I had, I was the only one really doing it that I knew of. And like, I had to kind of stand up to the group and stand up to the threats. And eventually the threats stopped. They just lost interest because I wasn't responding or playing into the threats. Uh, you know, I still get random, you know, you're yeah. a race trader, yeah. uh, you know, stuff like that, yeah. you know, messages on Facebook and Twitter, but I mean, Twitter and Facebook ain't a real place. So like, right. I just respond with, you know, see me when you see me, man. Like, yeah. pull up. <laughs> you're like, pull all right, up, let's do like, it. Uh, you know, yeah, because I know and, that is probably part of it. And then you mentioned there was a cop involved. I, I have found that that's not, um, out of bounds like there definitely is a link between right-wing extremism of that nature and local law enforcement sometimes i mean i'm not saying it's the majority of cops but it definitely does exist um, yeah, yeah which is something does, we uh, also need to look at it that's really problematic i think um yeah i i think it is and and i think that uh that's a really sensitive subject to to get into i would i would implore the the leadership at these police departments these sheriff departments these local and and state level uh entities to really you know do some digging and some some background checking on their officers and yeah. while i like I, while i will go on record say that the percentage of law enforcement officers that are involved in right-wing extremism or white supremacy is such a fraction of a fraction but the the results and the consequences of those people Our being seats. allowed to practice yeah. law enforcement and still be a part of these movements are yeah. unfathomable. I like, agree. you know, you look at, you look at how 
the the profiling and the right. the way they abuse their power it's it's it's, bad. it's ridiculous. Yeah. No, it's bad. Yeah. It's like you, you don't need a majority of anything to cause a lot of harm, right? That's sort of the case. Right. And it's the case with any sort of extremist group. Um, you know, like they're not the majority of the population, but that doesn't mean they can't wreak havoc on civil society. Right. Clearly they can. I don't think January 6th happened in a vacuum. You know, No, like, January 6th has been happening for years and years and years. And like, you know, one of the like ever really opposite like I, I admit 100%, like, January 6th was fucking scary, man. Like, the fact that that could happen and everybody was so unprepared. Yeah. You know, the multiple, uh, I'll use the word that was used by, by both parties, the multiple systemic failures yeah. of January 6th. Uh, and the fact that most of those people there were veterans was scary. And, and like, while I don't think that the, those people were there to really harm anybody, had they been, those veterans would have brought body armor and guns. Yeah. Uh, but the show of force was was scary. And the fact that that can happen again and we need to take measures to to really go above and just identify terrorist organizations. Mm-hmm. Like we need to we need to slap a label on them. And, you know, there was a lot of push to Trump to do this with you know, Oath Keepers, Boogaloo Boys, white supremacy, the Klan, not neo-Nazi movements, but like the same push is on the current administration to do the same thing. And yeah. we've seen the exact same response of nothingness, nothingness right? Exactly. And, and we hold one group to a standard that we don't hold the other group to. And right. while I'm a libertarian and I think that both parties are just full of absolute shit, um, <laughs> it's it's open. It's obvious. It's obvious yeah. that Republicans will hold Democrats to a standard that they won't follow. And Democrats yeah. will hold Republicans to a standard that they're sports. obviously yeah. not following. It's, yeah. it's turned into team sports. It's ridiculous. They, they will it's excuse, tribalism. It is. They will excuse bad behavior in their team, but not For in the sure. other team. And it's, it's, and it's they won't, a problem. I agree with you they won't hold the same standards to their team that they right. push onto the other team. Like yeah. where are the designation of terror of, of domestic terrorist organizations? Where are we designating these groups? Like, I mean, we really need to, we really need to hold our elected officials accountable. Yeah. Right. And I don't disagree. It's, it's gotten, I don't disagree. Yeah. It didn't. Yeah. It didn't. It happened over decades it's of, been of just yeah. frustration. It's been building. Yeah. And I think there's a frustration that exists in the country because neither political party is responding to the needs of the majority of Americans. They're responding to their donor class. Um, I think Absolutely. part of our to the conversation is also the rabid in- income inequality in the country. I don't think we can continue to let that fester. So there we, are we definitely, cannot. There's definitely underlying factors that are happening um, economically and politically that are, are yeah. uh, sort of egging the extremists on. I, I think that that's sort of the root of what we have to get to as a society. But the problem is, as you're saying, that neither neither party really wants to deal with it. They just want to ignore right. it. Right. And and then you look at the media that, that pushes the divide of, yeah. of Americans, like, you know, yeah. this this pro-racial divide and this pro, you know, economic class divide, this pro-political divide. Yeah. It doesn't matter what news outlet you turn on TV, there's a narrative there's and a there's narrative. A, a push. And, you know, yeah. I think that it's it's really it's a tough situation to navigate it's these are grassroots movements and there has to be grassroots responses to the movements yeah. to kind of, of neutralize the effect that, that the news media fox news msnbc cnn has on the effect of of our our 
Yeah, no, cable news has, has just not been helpful. I think that, uh, you know, oftentimes the narratives that they're putting forth aren't true. They're, they're, there's no commitment to veracity, but they're also sort of polarizing for the country. Um, and it's yeah. I agree with you, it's part and parcel to the problem. Also, you have a lot of media folks that aren't experts in the areas that they're necessarily reporting on. Like I... Um, you know, I was talking to Andy Campbell from the Huffington Post, and we were having a discussion about how sometimes these journalists, they'll interview like a, a right-wing extremist who is both a neo-Nazi and a proud boy. He's got a proud boy tattoo. He's, you know, I've seen him do videos in front of swastikas. This guy, this guy's a very extreme person. And yeah. he's like telling this person that they're, oh, no, it's just a drinking club. I'm not a racist. And you're like, and this person, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I so, love it, man. I love it. And and that's another thing, too, is I, I would implore people who are concerned about extremism in this country to really just get involved and do some research, right? Yeah, like, yeah. stop sensationalizing it. Stop pushing identity politics. Uh, as reporters, like, where did the standards go? Yeah. Um, reporters and journalists are, are allowing these big networks to tell them what to report on and how to report on it. And, yeah. like... There's a few really good journalists out there still that, that report honestly and openly. And, you know, we, we need to get back to that. Right. But like sometimes that, that sort of, I agree with you. And sometimes that re doesn't require giving both sides equal time and equal measure. Right. Sometimes right. your job is checking the guy that's standing in front of you and telling you a lie. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that one of the, the biggest things that I've been advocating on for years is releasing these fucking manifestos yeah. and pictures of these damn school shooters and these committers of mass violence stop sensationalizing these fucking guys yeah. stop showing their pictures on the news stop fucking really their manifestos are fucking released sooner than the victims names and pictures yeah. it's bullshit it's yeah. it shows you just how just where the narrative lies right because it's the job of the media to sensationalize the shooter and get the next one's attention. And I think that there's almost a criminal aspect of this. Yeah. Those those manifestos, those weapons, those shooters' pictures should go into a classified document. Don't give them any credit. Don't give them any glory. Yeah, because that's what Focus they're looking on the for. Victim. A lot of them that's want exactly the attention it, and the glory. Yeah, you see them talking yeah. about, you know, in fact, there's... they're talking about each other. They're <laughs> leaving in their manifestos the, the previous shooter. That's... And it's like, yeah, we still released that manifesto to talk about. Right. So the next kid's like, this is how I, I get my point across. This is how I make my statement. You know, it, yeah, it, no, it, know that's well, a really touchy subject for they me. They lionize, man. you know, like Dylan Roof or something, you know, like he's, you know. Yeah, they, they idolize him. And, yeah. And the media on both sides allow that. They allow this person to, we're showing pictures of the shooter and him, and releasing his manifesto for the world to read before we ever even know who the victims are. Yeah. Right? That's a problem. I, I would love to spend as much time on the victims of Uvalde and the families that were damaged and destroyed over yeah. what happened and, and the backstories of these children that were taken from us over the shooter bro like we yeah. played the shooter entering the school and the cops messing up more than we even like we're not even talking about the victims no more but we're still talking about the shooter we're still talking about uvalde and the cops like it's bullshit man and, yeah, and the people that put a token for like the arguments over uh, you know gun reform laws it's like that's all the, that's, that's the only what reason. they use it for they politicize yep. it in a way yeah that's I, it 
Don't disagree, and, and I Chris. Think Don't disagree. Anybody who can push that narrative is so full of shit they can't smell their self. Focus on the victims. Focus on reaching out to the families and being like, how can we come together and surround this individual and, and get them through this fucking tragedy that they've experienced, right? Yeah. Let's not glorify the shooter in the in, in the manifesto. And that's that's my two cents on it. Right. I mean, there's a way I think there's a way to report on these things without doing exactly that. So and it is a balance and it requires um, it requires not sensationalizing something, I think, you know, have yeah. a discussion about like, OK, so this guy was a white supremacist. He said these three words here. You don't have to publish the whole thing. Just make it clear to people that this is where this guy was coming yeah. from. That's you know, but when you get to the point where you're lionizing these extremists, they want that, right? You, you, you're right. They feed off of it, and it just feeds into this. Uh, I mean, you think about it. For example, like for comparison, look at what we're doing with Jeffrey Dahmer and serial killers in this country. Look yeah. at how much like sensationalization. Wait till the next serial killer pops up, and he's like, "I was inspired by Jeffrey Dahmer. I remembered watching the series on Netflix and like just really bonded and identified." So it's like, you know, we can look at what another person does. Absolutely. But in the process of that, we have to look at where we're contributing to it. Yeah, 100 percent. As a society. I don't disagree, Chris. Um, any parting words, um, anything we didn't discuss that you think is important about your program? Yeah, I mean, like, I think that one of the most important things is that we have one of the we have the only non-governmental funded helpline oh. in, in, in the United States. Uh, okay. And. You know, people can reach out to us at, you know, at our helpline. We're not connected to the government. We don't report to the FBI. Uh, we're not connected to law enforcement. We're That's just important. doing the so work. So it's safe. You know, that is interesting because, again, this is something I never would have considered. It is important to have a helpline or a hotline that isn't uh, connected to government funding or the government because these people need to be feel like they can safely approach you for right. help without being yeah. like, you know, having a FBI dossier opened on you for being an extremist. That is really huge, actually. Um, what is that number? Are you, can you say what it is if somebody's Yeah, to for this? sure, man. Uh, it's 1-844-49-PEACE. Uh, okay. And, you know, I, I'd like to, you know, encourage anybody that's having any struggles or, or you know, concerns about a loved one or themselves that just really need help and reach out to us. And uh, we're, we're always there. We're 24 seven. It's a free service. Uh, that's the service we provided our nonprofit. So uh, with that being said, we are a nonprofit and uh, we Can get our money donations. from donations. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, you know, uh, visit our website, check us out, reach out. If there's anything that you would like to get involved with or, or just help us out uh, the websites, www. The, the parents, the number four piece.org. Excellent. Chris, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story with us. I think uh, people will be illuminating, find it illuminating. And I know it's probably difficult to have to repeat these things over and over again. It's like sort of reliving trauma, but um, you're, you're very brave to do that, to do the work you do. Um, and it's much appreciated that you spend some time with us today. Yeah, no problem, man. Thanks for having me. And uh, you know, I just hope that, that the conversation we had today can help somebody else, uh, whether it be help them get involved in the, the work that we do or help them reach out to somebody in their community who might be struggling. Like, you know, just you never know what, what kind of people you're going to touch and what kind of change you're going to have. And this, I just hope that it reaches the person that needed, that needs it to be reached to. So hundred percent. And sometimes that's just 
other people having an understanding of what's happening, you know, like how how you become an extremist and why why we need to look at how we're, you know, addressing that as a society. So thanks again. Frank is rumored to be the guy behind the movie American uh, History X. So he is a guy that was part of the skinheads, got into the movement young, around 13 years old. By the time he was 18, he had a public access TV show uh, called Reich, which was obviously about skinhead movements and neo-Nazism. And he traveled the country recruiting other uh, white, uh, white supremacists into the movement. What changed was he ended up doing a, a stint in prison and he became friends with a black guy while he was in there. And it kind of caused him to unravel all of his belief system. And now he works uh, on the opposite side. Uh, so he was at a BLM protest and we decided to talk to him. This interview is being conducted by my associate, uh, Sean Beckner Carmichael. So let's hear what Frank has to say. My name is Frank Mink, but Mink spelled very weird. Mink is M-E-E-I-N-K. Find me on Instagram or Twitter. Um, so, who I am? So, I'm a former neo Nazi. Uh, I was a neo Nazi from 1988 to 1994. Uh, I got out, they made a loosely based movie and wrote a couple books about me. Uh, I've been studying race since that time. I've got, well, I was in the neo Nazis, I studied race, and then when I got out, I studied for the last 25 years on how empathy is the key to ending racism. Individual. I also do interventions on people in hate groups. So I've been doing that for the last 20 years, getting guys out of the hate groups. So what does that intervention look like? I'm sure it's a very emotional, very stressful experience. Could you kind of walk through, I'm sure you'll have to glaze over yeah. the process a little bit, but just kind of go into a little bit what those look like, what the process is. A lot of the times an intervention on a guy is more or less us um, trying to point out where in his life where his life is falling short now because of his beliefs, right? Because we can't just, if we just went and just argued beliefs, you, you can go all day. But if we just talk, talk about how, like, where's your life at right now? You, know, you thought you were going to be the next Hitler and you're on probation and your probation officer has me coming and talking to you. Like, where's your life at, right? So, and, and then, and then just giving the show them people that they hate. And I've always been able to find the right people to bring around. Say I find a neo-Nazi who's just had a nasty breakup with a girlfriend. I'll make sure I find a black guy that's gonna help me think that just went through or can talk about that. And it's boom, it's instant, man. It's instant. And there's one of them on YouTube, actually, if you look it up. Uh, Frank Mink, M-E-E-I-N-K, TV show. And you'll see my old TV show that I used to do the intervention on. Awesome. So, but I wanna talk about the, the, the thing that I know that is true here is that the police have used their lobbyists and their union to move from civil servants. See, there's there's civilians, which are us, the people, and then there's our elected officials above us who we put there, and then there's civil servants who are supposed to be beneath us. That's the way democracy works. Well, over the last couple of years with lobbyists and their unions, the police have moved above us in between, and they broke democracy. This is true. How did they do it? With the war on drugs, kicking in black people's doors, pulling them out of cars to search them all the time. You know, they used that law and they broke this system. There's 2.4 million people in prison because of the way they broke it. And because they search our cars and pull us out and bring them fake stuff, drunk. Brianna Taylor, everyone keeps saying, let's talk about the no-knock warrants. No, it's a no-knock drug warrant that got her killed. A no-knock drug warrant. So if we eliminated drug warrants, what would that look like? It would be beautiful. 
that means cops cannot pull us out of the cars no more. They can't say, we want to search your car for drugs. They can't bring the dogs around. They have to just give you a ticket and let you go. And we're also going to save officers' life because now guys are not going to be all freaked out about going back to parole, on parole, shooting it out with the cops because they have a half ounce of coke in their car. It saves officers' life because we know you're just going to give us a ticket. Stay out of our lives. Stop breaking the Fourth Amendment. Police are only trained on not how to respect our Fourth Amendment. They're only trained on how to trick us out of getting things from our Fourth Amendment. And that's what we need to stop right now. That would be the one thing they could surrender to say, okay, now we can talk and have peace. Awesome. I know I have to ask because people will want to know. Could you talk a little bit about your relationship with the film in the book, American History X? Yeah, so American History X, you know, no one will ever fess up if anyone wrote it about me except for the director did. He, he kind of one time had mentioned me. So they did their own thing. Uh, that's why they made, there's a lot of stuff that's different about who, really what happened and who I am. He, they don't have the same name. It's Derek Vineyard, but my name is really Frank Mink. And if you Google it or well, IMDb me even, it's a, it's, a, it's a tribute question on IMDb. So um, uh, the book was a, uh, a different process. The book, I went with book writers and fact finders, and we went to every location in my life that something happened, and we played Illinois. Uh, I was in Illinois for a while, the Department of Corrections in Illinois. Uh, all these different crazy places, and I went and we wrote my book called Autobiography of Recovering Skinhead. Thank you. Uh, one big question for me, uh, particularly because you work with white supremacists, this might be a little bit of a loaded question, but uh, do you find, as someone who is still sort of working inside that, within that community, I guess is the best way to put it. Do you find that you are working with people with police connections? Do you find that there, in your opinion, is there a police connection to white supremacist groups okay. in large enough numbers to warrant discussing? Uh, on Not on the work that I do now, do I know the officers, but from when I was a neo-Nazi, I know guys that were neo-Nazis with me that have become cops. And some of them have been found out and some got kicked off forces. I think that has moved to another force, which is bad. This is one of our problems we have, where cops go from force to force to force. Um, some have lost their jobs, and um, but there are still ones that are absolutely, and are still totally involved, that are neo-Nazis, that are uh, police officers, that are you know, long-standing police officers now. Um, in doing the work I do now with, uh, with the neo-Nazis, the one thing I, I have to be clear with is that I don't want nobody to go to even neo-Nazis, like I'd rather help them than go to prison. So I've never been a guy who, I've never helped law enforcement to put anyone in prison, but I did for years help law enforcement on all of their hate crimes training. And I became accustomed to, and that's how I started to learn about the Fourth Amendment trick. They never talk about how important it is to us. They just talk about how it's important to get trick us into letting us search our cars. Let us, and it's always, once a police officer is searching your car, he's not trying to help you anymore. He's trying to build the case. Instant, he pulls you out of that car, that man is looking at you in the back of his squad car, get you in the county jail and get you booked. That's why he's searching your car. And that's what we need to stop right now. We need it all to stop because it's mostly portrayed on black people. And here's the, the you know who they're not kicking in the door? The, the family that started the opiate, the opiate op, you know, the Oxycontin epidemic, that family in the Purdue company, we ain't kicking in their doors. We ain't going around our houses with drug sniffing dogs and shit. No, we only do it to mostly poor and minorities. It's the way the police got above us in the system and they broke it. We have private prisons in this country now. We are in fucking trouble. But the American people can fix this. Um, so where do you think, how do you think we can fight white supremacy? Perhaps if someone's an ally and 
either knows someone who is an avowed white supremacist or maybe even someone who shares a lot of those beliefs but perhaps might not be aware of it? Um, you know, on, on, on the, the neo-Nazis and, and the, the racist guys that, you know, uh, I've done an intervention on a guy one time, his daughter was marrying a black man, he was just an old school, as he thought, old school racist, right? And so, um, and, I, and I happily did an intervention on him and it, it absolutely worked. He went to his daughter's wedding, he was part of his daughter's wedding, he, he refused to go until we had this meeting and it, it was pretty tremendous. But the reason I want to bring him up is because I don't worry about him. We shouldn't worry about him. That's not, that's not the racism that we're trying to fight here. That's just ignorance. The racism that we're trying to fight is the private prison industry and, and the lockup and the lockup rate of people for nonviolent drug offenses just to give a dude a case. See, because once they get a person locked into the system, now he's on probation. If he can't pay off his probation, then he has a better chance of getting violated and then go upstate. And it all starts with these little drug convictions. That's what, that's, so I don't worry about the, the guy saying the N-word. He's just ignorant, and, and hopefully God will affect him like he did me. I don't worry about him that much anymore as I worry about the systematic of racism. Um, I guess one big question I have. Uh, take me through your personal journey and what the catalyst was to turn from a white supremacist in the 80s to someone at a Black Lives Matter protest yeah. in 2020. That's that's quite a that's quite a, a, a sea change. Can yeah. you take me through the catalyst of that? I'll tell you, just up to this right now, it's one of the proudest days of my, proudest times I've ever been on a prison bus was being arrested here. And I've been on a couple of them in my life, but I never was so proud of, of, of all the people I was with. It was just amazing. Uh, so to say that, um, the, the trans, I grew up actually around most of the black people. I grew up in like West Philly, Southwest Philadelphia. I went to an all black school. I went to, you know, I fist fought a lot. That's what kind of got me into the skinheads. But when I got into prison and I got so high up into the neo-Nazis and anyone can just research me, I'm not talking by ego. I'm ashamed of what I've done in that movement. But I got really popular, really big in it for a long time. And when I was in prison, I started playing football with a lot of black dudes. I was in Chicago prison system. I was a young 17-year-old kid in the maximum security adult prison. I was in the same prison with John Wayne Gacy, the serial killer. Like, I'm in that same prison. But anyway, I got to play football with a lot of these kids. And man, we just, when you play football and play sports with a bunch of kids, man, you just have to change. Like we talked, this is 1992, 90, no, 93, 94. Man, I would like, black kids that I would get done playing basketball with, like we'd always talk about girls and what's going on in life. I couldn't talk to the older Aryans, my older gang about that stuff, but I was a young buck, but I was also a very highly protected person because of who I was on the outside. But I just noticed that more days out of the night, out of out of any other times, I always wanted to be around like G or Jello or Tony. The guys that like made me laugh. Like they would just make me laugh all the time. Um, so when I was getting out of prison, I kinda had this little bit of this feeling that I was kinda cool in the black and the Asian and the Latino. Like I can get that we're all equal. But I'm still a neo-Nazi, and I still want to be a neo-Nazi at the time. I'm getting out of prison. I'm 19 years old. That's all the clout I have in the world is this neo-Nazi world. So I continue just to hate the Jews. That was my one last thing I could hold on to. And then I had a big swastika on my neck at the time. So if you ever seen an old picture, I used to have a big swastika tattoo right here. I got it laser surgery off, and you still see little dots of it and stuff. But I had my skinhead, skinhead on my knuckles laser off. Anyhow. I couldn't get a job worth nothing, man. This is not good people skills, you know what I mean? We have a swastika and I have tattoos all on my head, aggravated kidnapping. And a Jewish man gave me a job at an antique show, carrying out antique furniture. 
And uh, this man just was a decent man. He was very Jewish. And my boss, my buddy told me before I got the job, he goes, you're the guy that owns a company, he's a Jew. He only needed me for three days. So I said, I don't care, I don't gotta talk to him. Do I, can I just work for him? And then, and he's like, yup, he's, I told Keith about you. I said, I told him, yo, I know some neo-Nazi needs a job. Keith is a Jewish man. He goes, I don't give a rat's ass what he believes, just don't break my furniture. And I showed up and I worked for this man. And then after that, he gave me a full-time job because he liked the way I worked. And he used to, I used to drive around with this man all the time, go pick up furniture all around Philly and New York. And he would teach me about antiques and about business and about life. And we'd drive in trucks and I would read the OJ Simpson trial was going on at the time and I'd read it to him. And as we were driving, we'd talk about life. And being a neo-Nazi, I'm an egomaniac with no self-esteem. So when I break shit, I always go, oh, I'm so stupid. Well, I used to do that all the time. And one time I broke something in front of this Jewish man at a marble top table, which I shouldn't have broke. Stupidity on my part. And so I told Keith, Keith, I'm so stupid. I'm so sorry that I broke that. And Keith came over to me, this Jewish man, Keith Brookstein, grabbed me by the back of my neck and pulled me close to him and said, stop saying you're stupid, you fucking idiot. Clean it up and let's go. And he unloaded on me in the drive home that day. He unloaded me. He's like, I hate when you say you're stupid. He's like, you're one of the smartest people I've ever met. He goes, Frank, smart people can fake being dumb, but dumb people can't fake being smart. You're just smart, Frank. That's amazing. And as I was walking away that day, it was the final day where I was like, this is it. Like, God is proving me wrong. Like, human nature, science, and God. Because as a neo-Nazi, when I was just getting out of all this, I would drive down the streets of Philly, and I see a guy, a black dude, selling food stamps on a street corner, you know, 50 cents on a dollar, that's how he sells. 50 cents on a dollar means he's standing selling food stamps. And I would say, and I, I'd be out of the movement, but I would say, well, maybe the movement was right. And I go, wait a minute, my mom does that. My mom's been selling her food stamps my whole life. But she just doesn't do it on the street corner. So I'm gonna judge this man over the same actions my mom does. Or an Asian person would cut me off and then drive and he oh, Asian driver. Then I was like, wait a minute, my aunt hit a cow. Like, how do you hit a fucking cow, man? Like, they don't have deer, they don't jump in front of your fucking car. Like, the cow was already there and she hit it. So maybe not, maybe everyone are bad drivers. Like, it was, and I had to start breaking that down. And that was 27 years ago. Now it's, you know, my life is beautiful. And I, I mean, I have children that are not white. And I mean, amazing relationships that have men in my life who are not of my color who are mentors to me that guide my life that and men who are not white who guide my life and how I should be the good human so um, you talked quite a bit about systemic racism we talked quite a bit about the fourth amendment and how that ties into the war on drugs mm-hmm. and, and, and the racial issues that are involved with the war on drugs um, what do you think America needs to hear the most right now. Right now, right now we need all drug warrants stopped. That's the, just, the police, with them being up on, the police being above us now and breaking the system of democracy, again, it's a true story. There's 2.4 million people in prison that they broke the chain of democracy. Once we can get them back down, and what America needs to remember is white people. And this is, I'm sorry to say this to my white friend, for a long time, we got into the life raft of America and we pulled the fucking ladders out of the water for everybody else to get in. And it's time for we the people to put the fucking life raft back in, get the police off their fucking heads, because they're civil servants. They should be paddling the boat for us, really. That's their job. And we need to put the ladders back in the water, get everybody in this fucking life raft, and then know where we sell off to? Enlightenment. Straight enlightenment. That's our next frontier as a, as a human race. It's enlightenment. It starts by treating everyone equal and get us all in that life raft. 
Now we're going to talk with Chuck Leak. Chuck Leak is an ex-hammer scan. He was recruited into the neo-Nazi movement by Tom Metzger, who was a guy that ran a movement out of outside of California, it was based in California, crept out to the rest of the country. It was the uh, war or white Aryan resistance in the 80s. Um, he was also a member of the military. He was a Navy airman, and he uh, was able to do some recruitment from other military guys in the system, but also outside of the system. He now is what he refers to as an exit specialist. So right off the bat, Chuck, I wanted to ask you, how does one fall into this to begin with? I don't think people just wake up one day and decide to be neo-Nazis. There's a, something that happens, right? So can you walk us through a little bit of how that happens, who's, who's susceptible and the things that uh, pull you in further? Sure. There, there are, you know, there are multiple vectors that, that people fall into, but a common theme that, um, that you hear has to do with childhood trauma. Um, I mean, it's not always the case, but it is frequently. Uh, it was in my case, you know, I, I had some stuff happen to me when I was 10 that, that I just never really dealt with properly. My parents didn't deal with it just, and then by the time I was in my early mid teens, it just was this like, you know, kind of self-hatred and rage that I felt then didn't understand, didn't know why. And, you know, because of like the atmosphere when I was growing up in the seventies in LA was very, um, very accepting of white supremacist stuff, you know, like SS bolts and swastikas and SWP on pe people's peachy folders at school were, you know, <laughs> dating myself their peachy folders. Yeah, were, I had them. Well, I had peachy folders. <laughs> yeah, they, they were a common thing back then, yeah. you know, and, and like you saw it all over the place. <laughs> and um, so it, it just kind of was a, you know, a desensitizing thing. And then, like I said, when I started getting into my middle and later teens, I was just really super angry at the world and and then <clears throat> joined the military started running with skinheads in the military met some civilian skinheads that were you know more overtly not neo-nazi than we were um and then ended up doing this uh news uh news series on the local station in the area we lived and Tom Metzger was inv involved with that. And from that, he became aware of us and recruited us. And we formed a chapter of the White Aryan Resistance Skinheads. And I was in that for a couple of years, did some time in prison, did some, was out of state for a while doing various, you know, white supremacist stuff, not skinhead stuff necessarily. Um, and then came back to California and got involved with the Hammerskins. And so I was in Hammerskins for five or six years before I finally dropped out. <clears throat> and so by the time you were in the Hammerskins, you had left the military or were you still part of the military? I had left the military. I I was in the military when I was the Warskins, um, but then I got convicted of a felony, a civilian felony, released from the military, went to prison. And then after I got out of prison, is the, that's when I left the state for a while and then came back and then joined the Hammerskins. So. Okay, so let's talk about the military for a second, because when you initially became indoctrinated into white supremacist th thought, it sounds like you were in the military. Was the military part and parcel to that? Well, <clears throat> I, I had been exposed to a lot of white supremacist um, symbology and language prior to joining the military. Like I was saying, growing up in LA, a lot of, you know, I hung around with a lot of like biker K 
kids, you know, sons and younger brothers and stuff of biker gang guys. And so there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of the lingo and, but it wasn't ideological, you know? So then when I joined the military and met these guys that were more ideological, that's where, you know, joining an organized group and getting involved with Metzger and all that stuff did happen in the military, but it wasn't, the military wasn't like, I mean, other than the fact that that's how I ended up where I was, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't get radicalized quote unquote in the military, although it did play a pretty significant role as to like being in the place that I was. So. Interesting. Now, so for folks that don't know who Tom Metzger is, let's talk about him for a second. Uh, Is he originally from California? Uh, No, he's originally from like Indiana, but he was based out of Fallbrook, California, which is in, you know, San Diego County for for decades, you know, like most of his career where he was well known, like back in the 80s, he was doing, you know, like Oprah Winfrey and Geraldo Rivera. Skinheads are angry. One expressing that anger on cable access channels with white supremacist Tom Metzger. Those were ready to fight on the streets and fight anywhere, wherever it takes. They're angry young people, and they're all over Europe. They're all over the United States. The show that Geraldo got his nose broken on was Tom Metzger was on that show. was one of Tom Metzger's bodyguard guys that threw the chair. You know, a bunch of, bunch of guys that I knew from back then were on the show. <clears throat> um, anyway. Um, so yeah, he was a he was a really high profile white supremacist leader um from the late 70s until, you know, he he kind of lost a little bit of his profile after losing the um the civil rights suit for the Mulligan Sarah case in Portland. Um it it broke him financially, but it didn't stop what he was doing and, and in fact he like talked about um how that set him free actually to do what he really wanted to do which was um you know like create leaderless resistance networks such as we're seeing today with like adam waffen in the base and stuff like that who all you know trace their roots back to tom and in fact sought him out when they were forming their groups I, wait, let's talk about that for a second. I didn't realize that. So I didn't realize Tom Metzger had such a, a influence on these modern, and, and that's what they are. They're more like smaller cells. So these are not necessarily national groups with top-down organizations. They're smaller groups. And we're seeing that also with, I think, the activist movement with these um, sort of MMA fight club kind of place uh, groups. So now that stemmed from something Metzger wanted? Well, most of the most of the high profile guys back then in the eighties, but Tom in particular, were talking about, um, you know, blending in. You know, don't get all tattooed up. Don't dress like a skinhead. If you don't have felonies, you know, join the military, join police forces. So there was a there was a big push towards infiltration, and. Um, also decentralizing and and separating people from each other so that, you know, there's no central group that can all get taken down at one shot. Yeah. Right. So it's easier to evade law enforcement that way. And it's also, if you're able to actually become part and parcel to law enforcement, you're going to have more influence on spreading the ideology. So that makes sense. Right. You mentioned a lawsuit that came out of Oregon. I want to talk about that for a second for folks that don't know. I believe that that might be the lawsuit that stemmed from the Southern Poverty Law Center for a hate crime that he was involved in. Is that correct? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, he he okay. wasn't he wasn't involved. It was there were a group of skinheads that were you know a couple of them were his his guys, and they were recruiting up in the Portland area. And while they were up there recruiting, uh, some of the guys that were Tom's guys and some of the guys that were local guys attacked and and ended up killing a, an Ethiopian. I believe he was Ethiopian um, immigrant, Mulligata Sarah. Um, and you know a couple of them went to prison for a long time for that um but then the splc and and i think there were a couple other groups involved they um they sued metzger in a civil trial which he lost and had a like a 12 million dollar judgment against him wow that's wild okay so that kind of killed that whole thing that's a big judgment um, let me ask you this. What are some of the common methods that they use to recruit folks when they go out and recruit? They, do they look for spe uh, specific types of individuals that they think might be open to the messaging? How do they pick those folks out? What, what kinds of things do they say? Well, back then, it was really more about um, like putting out papers and stickers and things like that and making your presence known. And then people would call and then we would meet them. It's kind of similar to that now, except that most of it is done online On via Telegram, you know, yeah. Telegram or Discord <laughs> or you know right. whatever whatever platform it may be. Um, it's you know kind of the same idea. It's just it's not in a physical space. Although that stuff is still going on. I mean, like Patriot Front is doing, you know, sticker stickering all over the place, and so I mean, it is still happening. No, it's definitely still happening. So these are folks that are just automatically sort of predisposed already to thinking this way. And then they see something that says, oh, there's other people that think like I do. I'm going to contact them kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. So okay. I think a lot of the initial radicalization process does kind of happen um, more frequently, at least in my experience, in sort of an isolated space. And then you and finding people who think more alike and then you know it, it's kind of snowballs from there that's that's kind of my experience of it anyway now that sounds from looking on the outside in that sounds about right from what i can tell so yeah. but here's my thing chuck um you know sometimes there are people that have they harbor racist thoughts racist ideology but they don't actually do violent acts based on it then you have others that get to the point where they actively seek out doing a violent act what What's the trigger for that, in your opinion? I I don't think you can really like pin that down to one thing, you know. And typically, you know, the people that are going to take the um, step to commit violence are, you know, broken people. Like you know, generally speaking, there there's been some kind of significant, um, you know traumatizing factor of one sort or another that you know that's a pretty common theme but that's you can't like you can't make a blanket statement that says that you know everybody who's going to commit violence has trauma it's just because right. that's not a true statement you know so but it does seem to be a common factor and i um, i also think what a common factor is it sounds like to me is that folks that are you know maybe come from places where they didn't have a loving family or where they didn't feel like they belonged and they're looking uh, for, you know, having a group to belong to maybe, you know, some, some of the same things that you would see with folks that sort of join a cult in a way. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that's something that you hear commonly in the research behind, <clears throat> you know, 
the push and pull factors of of getting into or getting out of um, white supremacist groups is, and, and you know, it, it's kind of broad against any, across anything that sort of resorts to violence. But um, you hear a lot of stuff about you know looking for a place to belong, looking for purpose, you know, looking for you know friendship and brotherhood or whatever you want to call it. Um, you do hear that frequently. What makes you decide? all of a sudden to leave this. If you've been involved with, you know, uh, skinheads or neo-Nazi movement for many years, something must happen that makes you go like, what am I doing? Why am I here? I don't want to live this life anymore. What was your trigger? Yeah, so I wouldn't say that that's an all of a sudden. And okay. I don't think it's an all of a sudden in most cases. I mean, for I was thinking for years before I got out that that, you know, I should get out, you know, I mean, like, Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, I thought for a long time that, you know, this is, this is stupid. These people are stupid. The things they believe are stupid, but you're, you're just kind of like, you know, it's what you know now, you know, it's your social circle. It's like, like, you know, I was married and my wife had been involved. Like, it's just everybody I knew, you know, like just about everybody, you know, is involved in this stuff. And so, you know, and I hear this a lot with people I work with that, you know, they've been thinking for a while that, wow, this is just dumb, you know, I mean, and, or, or other versions of that, you know? Um, and then, so I got to a point where, you know, a bunch of stuff happened, I, you know, like a, a guy that I had been involved in a felony, ca- felony case with years before me and him were involved in the thing now, but I didn't, I wasn't caught. I would just happen to be there. And then he tried to drag me into it. And, and then like, so then a divorce. And so that's, you know, and all this was going on while I was with the Hammerskins. And I, I just walked away from the Hammerskins because of all that stuff and started hanging out with, you know, guys that were just like, you know, Nazi lowrider skinheads. They weren't really ideological. They weren't really involved with the movement. They were still, you know, they were still like white power skinhead dudes. They just weren't, you know, the they just skins. weren't out there committing ha- uh, hate crimes or whatnot. I mean, they were, but not okay. not in the name of any you know organized ideology. It was just more you know like you know drug crime and crap like that. Right. So for folks um, that don't know, let's explain that for a second. Uh, I know who the Nazi lowriders are. They, I think, they originally started in the San Fernando Valley in Palmdale. Actually, uh, could be you yeah, can correct yeah. me on that. But they are part of the Peckerwood group, the uh, Aryan Brotherhood group. That's how I would see them. Is that more or less yeah. correct? Uh, more or less. I mean, Ar- okay. Aryan Brotherhood is kind of a prison gang that's mostly in prison. Okay. The Nazi lowriders are are a prison gang that's kind of more outside of prison, and oh, like okay. they're you know like they're and it's NLR was like specifically yeah the game talking about, but then it came became kind of like a blanket term for all okay. of those types of groups that you know like okay. so like the penai in orange county and and you know the actual nlr those those kinds of guys are just kind of you know referred to at, at least in when i'm talking with people about it as nazi lowrider types you know okay. so they're that they're yeah they're, they're still they're still violent they're more drug oriented more crime oriented don't really associate with the the actual movement you know although there is crossover you know (laughs) anyway they don't tend to be organized and so i started hanging out with 
I tend to think of them as like, um, honestly, this is how I think of like the pecker wars and whatnot. I tend to think of them as organized gangs that deal drugs and run guns and whatnot and just happen to have a Nazi ideology on the side. Right, right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I started hanging out with those guys for a little while and then stepped away from that too and, and just completely. So all that took place over like two, two and a half years. And the thing that really kind of was really kind of the pivot is I was dating a girl for about a year and, and we were having a conversation one night and she dropped in the middle of the conversation that she was half Jewish. And I, uh, you know, it was kind of a stunner. Kind and, of yeah. Yeah. I mean, she knew, she knew what I was. I mean, she, that's, I met her through friends. She knew all my friends. And so she knew what was up and she told me this and, and I sat there for a minute, like kind of with my, you know, ears ringing a little bit and then realized as I was sitting there that I cared more about her than I did about all the crap I'd been spewing for, you know, 15 years before that or more than that really. Um, and so that was, that was kind of the, the turning point, but it wasn't like, it took me another 10 years after that to really like work through all of my stuff and change my belief system. And, and, and then, uh, right about that same time this is now like about 2011 i got connected with frank mink um and who i believe you also interviewed for this yes and right. uh <laughs> frank and i got were in touch i read his book you know got in touch with him at, at about that same time him and a few other people were co-founding life after hate and so i got involved as just like a volunteer i, I had never been really an employee of life after hate but I had been doing volunteer stuff for them and, you know, media appearances and talking to classes. And, you know, for a while I was writing prisoners um, in, you know, that were you know, people that were locked up, a pen pal kind of thing. And I did that for, you know, quite a few years from 2011 until this year, actually, um, on and off. I took some breaks in there for a while, but, and then, um, in April of this year, I started talking to the director of the exit USA program that like about coming on as a, we call it a, an exit specialist. That's my official title, but what it really is is a peer mentor, somebody that, um, works with people who are trying to get out to help them navigate you know, going through the stuff that they're going to go through. Right. So, which is, I has to be a process, I would imagine. Um, let me ask you this. Is it, is it dangerous for these folks to leave these movements? Because I know that some of these folks really probably don't want you out in the world, not believing what they believe anymore, um, that that might seem threatening to them. Is, is so, is it dangerous? I, I mean, absolutely. It can be. Yes. I, you know, I mean, people have been, you know, killed maimed um you know it, it doesn't it probably doesn't happen as much as people think it does but it does happen and it is dangerous yes i would imagine so 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 now part of your program is is peer mentoring and i think that makes sense because obviously somebody like myself or somebody that hasn't been through the experiences that you've been through it would be very difficult for me to um, relate to everything this person was going through because I haven't been through it. I think it's a certain set of circumstances uh, and you kind of bind or bond with each other over those shared experiences. 
So what are some of the methods that you use to reach out to these folks once they've come to you saying, you know, this is not the life I want anymore? Yeah, so Life After Hate has, um, has gone through some pretty significant changes in the last couple of years. We are, uh, you know, the, the Exit USA program got a new director and she's done uh, amazing things with the program. She's a psychologist. She's brought on social workers. And so we, we call it a, a multidisciplinary tertiary intervention program. You know, primary intervention is like stuff that, you know, goes to everybody at school or whatever. And secondary is more, slightly more targeted. Tertiary is dealing with people who have already been involved. Um, and so that's, that's our role as tertiary intervention. And yeah, having peer mentors um, is integral to the process as long as they're working with people who also know other professional aspects of what we're doing such as social workers and psychologists which we are not um and and you know some people try to be and and they can do more harm than good when they're doing that um but we can develop rapport with people so like the first the first kind of couple of things we're looking for, particularly if someone is actively engaged, is a disengagement and then a commitment to nonviolence. Those are those are the primary things. And we we work towards those things by developing a relationship, a rapport with the person and um, peer mentors uh, play a pretty critical role in that, in that, like, like you're saying, they, we can relate to where they've been and what they're going through and what's ahead of them and can kind of help get them through that stuff. Um, and so then hopefully after disengagement and commitment to nonviolence, we can continue working with them and work towards, you know, it's, it's, we don't really like this term, but de-radicalization, you know, I mean, that's, so we, we want to get them to change their ideology. Ultimately. Um, that's not the primary goal. The primary goal is, is convincing them to not hurt themselves or anyone else. But ideally with anyone we're working with, um, we want to get them to, you know, leave behind ideologies that dehumanize other people.